Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Tanya, I just want to let you know, since we're doing a show about the future of uh, transportation, I'm going to be really disappointed if we don't talk about flying hover cars at all, okay? I'm sure we can weave that in. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch, and today... Tanya Snyder on the future of transit after COVID and how to make it more equitable and efficient in a post-pandemic world. I think that part of what the pandemic did was it showed us the importance of essential workers and it showed us the importance of transit that essential workers depend on. When everyone else, when white-collar workers, knowledge workers started working from home and a lot of people became unemployed as well, essential workers were still depending on transit. And transit systems at first found themselves with 5% of the ridership that they'd had a week before, a month before, and started to really wind down service to save money and then realized that transit was really the thing holding society together. The essential employees that had been the ones who've been trying to keep some kind of normal going, many of them have been extremely dependent upon the public transportation services. Because if essential workers couldn't get to work, couldn't put food on our tables, couldn't heal our sick, then society, which was already, I mean, if you think back to last March and last April, We were so vulnerable. Things were so fragile. These are jobs that can't be done from home. And with an ongoing unemployment crisis crippling our country, many workers have no option other than to show up despite the health risk. And to think that, in a sense, transit was was one of the things that was really holding us together, I think gives us a, a new appreciation for what transit does in helping people move around and helping people who don't necessarily have their own cars, don't have their own access to to a private vehicle, um, but depend actually on the most efficient mode of transportation we have, which is mass transit. So you have this situation where the pandemic is shining a new spotlight on the people who depend on transit. But at the same time, now you have society just starting to go back to normal. Like I saw last week, I think the New York subway had its biggest day of ridership since the pandemic began, right? That's right. Yeah, so it feels like we're sort of in this weird moment where things could go back to exactly how they were before, or we could use the pandemic as an opportunity to learn and think about, you know, new ideas for the future of transit. And you got together a group of transportation policy experts and officials to talk about that. And you all came up with some ideas for how to make transit more equitable and more efficient going forward. Tell me what you learned. Well, we don't talk about redlining and transit the way that we talk about it in terms of housing, but but we can certainly talk about equity issues and the ways that we serve people and, and the fact that we've underinvested in transit for so long, partly because it has this kind of reputation as being for poor people in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And so we underinvest in it. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that people with other options will take any other mode of transportation because it's faster, it's more reliable, it's more pleasant. And we leave transit for the people who can't afford anything else. So 
when we have a system like that, we are prioritizing and incentivizing the least efficient mode, right? The one that leaves us with congested cities, traffic jams, streets that we're walking and biking are dangerous, um, with 40,000 people dying on our roadways every year, and with a climate catastrophe where transportation is the single largest emitter of climate emissions. As Beth Osborne said, who is the director of Transportation for America and was a top official in the Obama administration, mm -hmm. the, the idea that we need to you know, decide whether we're going to serve the core constituency of people who ride transit because they have no other choice or serve people who we want to lure out of their cars because getting them out of their cars is better for the environment, for our cities. We shouldn't have to make a choice. We should be providing good, reliable, frequent service for everyone. What we have to say is how are we going to move people around our region, whether they are essential workers or white collar uh, workers, it doesn't matter. All people need to be able to move around efficiently. And that's what you would do if you decided to fully invest in your transit system. So the idea is like transit is the last resort for a lot of people and the only choice sometimes for lower income essential workers. But to not only make it more equitable, but to make things more efficient and, and cleaner for the environment, you make transit appealing and convenient so that it's the first choice across the board. Right, right. And Mohammed Mizgani, the secretary general of the International Association of Public Transport in Europe, made a really good point that I think that a lot of people in the United States are afraid to make, which is that you're really not going to get greater transit ridership and adoption among people with other choices if we continue to incentivize driving alone, if we continue to make parking free and give up so much of our public space, so much of our public roadways to um, people driving alone and then let them clog up the roads so that buses run slow and it takes people a long time to get where they're going on transit. Because we can't just say, okay, uh, let people use their cars and, and, and go wherever they want with their cars. I mean, the city will collapse if we do that. We have to put the priority on the most efficient modes, which are, of course, walking, uh, public transit, cycling, and then cars. You know, if we keep subsidizing oil and gas, if we keep doing all of the things that we've been doing, um, all of the policies that we've been putting forward that really incentivize driving alone and say, what we're ending up with are counter to every goal that we set for ourselves as a country. And so let's incentivize something else. But but it's going to be hard to incentivize transit without disincentivizing driving. And that makes a lot of people mad. How do you disincentivize driving? Well, a lot of those things that I mentioned, I mean, first of all, we've been afraid to raise the gas tax for 28 years. I mean, that's an easy one. We need to pay for transportation somehow. You know, that that's been the way that we've been paying for it. So actually raising the gas tax, not being afraid to have a user fee for driving. Um, and, you know, but but we're getting into um, where people have more fuel efficient vehicles and electric vehicles. And that's great for the climate goals. But for the rest of our goals in terms of congestion, in terms of having great cities, in terms of maintaining public space, in terms of social equity, driving alone is still driving alone, even if you're doing it in an EV. And mm -hmm. so... I think that making sure that, that people are paying 
the cost of their use of public space. And that could also mean lowering speed limits in a lot of places to to make sure that cities are safer. And that might mean that transit becomes more competitive with driving in terms of time spent uh-huh. and and parking. I mean, we we give up vast swaths of our city for for parking, you know, including on roads or surface parking lots or garages. And we let people park in them for free. And that's incredibly valuable space. So all of those things have a cost. And that's just a cost that we've decided not to make drivers bear. And in other places where they're really dedicated to improving transit, drivers bear more of those costs. Hmm. So as we're talking about some of these ideas for how to reshape transit coming out of the pandemic in a more efficient and equitable way, the White House and Congress are currently negotiating an infrastructure package, which, of course, includes funding for transportation projects. Does what's being considered address some of these ideas that we've been talking about here? Overall, what the Biden administration wants to do uh, with the American Jobs Plan and what Democratic counterparts in the House and Senate also want to do is to make a, a major, major investment in transit. And the Biden administration especially is really focused on making sure that those transit dollars go to low income communities. So I think that these plans actually do address a lot of the goals that the experts that I talked to were prioritizing. Tanya Snyder, thanks so much for talking with me. Jeremy, it was fun. Thanks. Tanya reported this story as part of a Politico series called Recovery Lab, which explores some of the big ideas for how the country can emerge from the pandemic. You can find more at politico.com and in this episode's show notes. Also today, Facebook will no longer take down posts claiming that COVID-19 was man-made or manufactured. A company spokesperson confirmed the move to Politico on Wednesday. The policy change comes as support surges in Washington for a fuller investigation into the origins of the virus after the Wall Street Journal reported that three scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were hospitalized in late 2019 with symptoms consistent with the virus. The findings have reinvigorated the debate about the so-called Wuhan lab leak theory, once dismissed as a fringe conspiracy theory, with President Biden saying on Wednesday that he ordered the intelligence community to redouble its efforts to find out the virus's origin and report back in 90 days. And the ACLU and other legal teams are suing West Virginia over the state's recently passed law banning transgender women and girls from participating in school sports. Republican Governor Jim Justice signed the bill last month, making West Virginia the latest conservative state to enact a law banning transgender student-athletes from participating in sports teams that match their gender identity. The federal lawsuit was filed on behalf of an 11-year-old looking to try out for her school's girls' cross-country team. Her lawyers argue the West Virginia law discriminates on the basis of sex and transgender status and violates the Constitution under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and Title IX, the federal education law that prevents discrimination based on sex. 
Today's episode included music composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to subscribe to Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet. And also, check out some of our other shows like Politico Energy and Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.